And that, my friends, is how America was made great once again. Breaking at this hour, Jimmy Sangenberger is currently at the crossroads of politics and economics. Radio broadcaster master, now the celeb on the web. He's the smarty of the party. He's in cahoots with the grassroots. Jimmy at the crossroads brings you thought-provoking commentary, hard-hitting interviews, original satire, and the best bumper music known to man. Jimmy at the crossroads! Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics, with all generations, oh, what a great mix, I said. Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics, grateful to all generations, oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy and the Crossroads, making sense out of nonsense. People want answers. They want to understand They come to the crossroads And Jimmy gives them the plan I said, gonna talk money Gonna talk politics Great for all generations Oh, what a great mix I got Jimmy at the crossroads Making sense out of nonsense Come on, Jimmy, what you got? Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. So great to be with you. Thanks for joining us as we do our level best to make sense out of nonsense and bring engaging, intelligent talk, Sang style. Got a great show. Today, I'm looking forward to talking with Howard Husick, who has a great piece that came out last week online and is in the latest issue of the Washington Examiner magazine. You could subscribe, by the way, at WashingtonExaminer.com. It's entitled Living in the Future, and it's a fascinating read. Howard is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and his insights on going forward after this pandemic and living in the future and things we will have to keep in mind, how things may change and what have you, is very fascinating to be sure. Looking forward to diving into it with Howard. We will also talk with our producer extraordinaire, Matush Magic, Nathan Matush, a little bit about what's happening in the sports world. It's interesting here, especially the economic aspects of it all. And then Heidi Ganahl, board chair for Job Creators Network, will join us to talk about the latest news on the Paycheck Protection Program. But first, yesterday, I blasted MSNBC for Comments by David Zirin and Philip Rucker, and it just really, you just go down the line, that were absolutely despicable. They, they truly were despicable in saying that the protesters and rally goers across the country here in Denver, Colorado, where we're broadcasting from and elsewhere, insinuating or literally stating that they are racist, that they are Nazi Confederates, and the list goes on. Well, MSNBC is not the only source of 
mudslinging slime against Americans who, let's be honest, they're frustrated because their lives have been uprooted and their livelihoods are suffering now. And their lives are suffering now because of these government policies that we're told will just, by some, we're told will just have to keep going until the government decides in its infinite wisdom that we peons can live our lives as we want once again. Now, understandably, there will be policies in place and this takes time and so forth. But even so, the idea that we should just sit down and shut up and just take whatever the government tells us, that's not what we should be sitting for and not what the media should be spewing day in and day out. Now, let's go to CNN, where Don Lemon, who, I just the guy is self-righteous to the core. And let's play this clip of Don Lemon. Last night, he had an exchange with Chris Cuomo, and he went off on rally-goers and protesters saying, hey, we need to start reopening America. Every night when I leave this studio and when I come in, there, there's an army of people. When I go through, through New York City, an army of immigrants and people of color and poor people who are keeping this city running. They are disinfecting offices. They are cleaning people. They are changing bedpans and they are working. And those people are out there complaining because they don't have haircuts. Who the hell do you think you are? And if you're so upset about it, you should be mad at the president because they, he's the one that's supposed to help your small businesses. I understand that you're hurting. I understand that people are hurting. Yes, people, a lot of people are hurting. But there are people who are frontline workers who have to get out there. I did, I, you, you know I did the color of COVID this weekend. Those people are Great at the strength. grocery stores who didn't expect to have their lives be placed in danger because they have to work at the grocery store. They're driving buses. And you're protesting against, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're slapping the faces of the people who are the healthcare workers who put their lives on the line every day because you want a haircut, you want to go play golf. You're concerned about, of course you're concerned about your business. Tell the president that. And you're out there with with Okay, uh, all right, then, but, but too, that's, that's enough. That's all I can handle from Don Lemon. Just real briefly, because we're tight on time in this segment. The idea that you have Don Lemon, who, look, he's able to go into work in his studio. Good for him. I am, too. Good for me. He's able to continue his job talking down to average Americans. Don Lemon gets to do that just fine for him. But he doesn't want other Americans doing so. He says, slapping, it's a slap in the face to healthcare workers and grocery store workers. No, it isn't. Not one way, in no way whatsoever is calling for a reopening process to begin, a slap in the face of healthcare workers or grocery workers. There are other people who want to go out and work too and who are willing to take precautions and who understand that things are not going to be perfectly normal. Who the hell do you think you are, Don Lemon says, to these Americans who, are, who have been uprooted? Well, who the hell does Don Lemon think he is? Telling Americans what they can be frustrated about or can't be frustrated about. They can't just look to Trump to help small businesses because we don't believe that the federal government can actually step in and do the role of being the nanny for the American people for weeks or months on end. The American people do not believe that and should not believe that, certainly not these protesters and rally goers. 
Moreover, it's not just the president, it's Congress, which dithered for a long time for days and days to get this Paycheck Protection Program expanded a little bit because the Democrats were holding it up. I mean, gosh, this is just, this is sort of that, that consistent self-righteous attitude I noticed from Don Lemon and many others among the, the left and the media who sneer at average Americans who are expressing their frustrations. But, hey, they're making conclusions about why those Americans, are, oh, they just want a haircut. They don't just want a haircut. Come on. All right, we're out of time here. we got to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with Howard Husick of the Manhattan Institute about his piece for the Washington Examiner. Keep it right here. Jimmy at the Crossroads just getting started in partnership with the Washington Examiner. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. Ladies and gentlemen, let's send it to Sang Style. Jimmy Sagenberg, episode 28 of The Crossroads. Welcome back to Jimmy at the Crossroads, coming to you in partnership with The Washington Examiner, bringing the engaging, intelligent talk, Sang Style. Thanks so much for joining us. Being a part of the program, pleasure and a privilege to be with you as always. Be sure, if you have not done so already, to subscribe to the show on the YouTube channel, Jimmy at the Crossroads, youtube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. And I have to tell you that it is always such a treat to be here on this program and be able to delve in to substantive issues of the day. And especially when we're able to talk with writers and reporters at our partners at the Washington Examiner, including those who provide good content, who may not be mainstays at the Examiner, but are mainstays at other institutions that provide very thoughtful discussion on key issues of the day. So the Washington Examiner has a regular magazine, WashingtonExaminer.com, by the way, where you can go to subscribe. And there's a great new piece for the magazine for the latest issue entitled Living in the Future. The author is Howard Husick, and he is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And this really talks about some of the ways in which society may need to adjust and has been adjusting over time, really, to accommodate population changes and issues and questions of disease, viruses, and more. The author of Living in the Future, piece for the Washington Examiner magazine, Howard Husick, joins us now on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Howard, sir, welcome to the show. It is good to have have you. Great to be here, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time today to join us. So uh, let's just jump right into a very basic question, which is what made you want to address the question of living in the future and especially focus on issues like housing policy? I've written for a long time on housing policy, so it's, it's an interest of mine. And I was uh, engaged by the idea of, well, how is this going to just change everything? Our living patterns going to change? When you see uh, a disease, and disease has always been the downside of cities. Cities are great. I love cities. Cities 
are where civilization occurs. But it's also true that cities have long been associated with disease outbreaks. And now that that has reared its head again, I was curious as to contemplate the idea of how that was going to put into motion the living patterns and preferences of Americans. Now, one of the things that you start off doing is really talking a little bit about the history of housing in the United States and the changing patterns where we went from being more uh, city life like and onto moving into suburbs and spreading out a little bit more and then now back to a more urbanized type of situation in many respects. Chart us through a little bit of the history of the United States when it comes to housing arrangements. Well, of course, before, uh, you know, the Civil War, most of America lived on the farm, 90%. And with industrialization, cities emerged and changed our living patterns dramatically. So if you go to New York in the 1890s, suddenly you had the advent of tenement districts, of tuberculosis spreading in those districts, of concern on the part of reformers. How do we deal with this? And this density was very useful financially in all sorts of ways, but it also scared people because it was true that disease spread in uh, highly dense areas. And over the course of the 20th century, until pretty recently, you could see American living patterns as a, as a gradual uh, uh, move away from density. First, we went to places that you could reach on the streetcar, and then after World War II, car commuting, suburbanization, and larger and larger lots, not just suburbanization. The original Levittown lots, the first big post-war suburb, they were pretty small. But then over time, you started to have one and two acre zoning. And so we were in a retreat from density. But then, as the whole collective memory of cities as associated with uh, uh, illness and, and uh, the health concerns faded from our memory, uh, we had a back to the cities movement. And certainly, uh, we've seen New York regain all the population that it lost. So it's back to well over 8 million and was moving toward 9. We've seen uh, density in the Bay Area the same way. So uh, we had moved back toward density, and now uh, we're rolling the dice again. I've noticed something, Howard Husick, again, our guest, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of the piece for the Washington Examiner magazine, Living in the Future. I noticed that when we see this crisis unfold, and as we've seen it unfold over the last couple of months especially, that the hot spots, as they've been called for the spread of coronavirus, COVID-19, has more so been in these urban areas. And it's interesting to see that given where we are now here in the 21st century, in the year 2020, when even centuries ago, people understood that viruses spread in th these more urbanized centers where you have a lot of people that are collected together. What do you think that the nature of our society has become as far as the uh, housing makeup and sort of a return to where things have been in the past, despite the lessons we've learned about things like the spread of virus and disease? Well, we had such medical successes that we became complacent about these things. I think that's the only way to put it. But let's keep in mind, uh, 
you know, as, as the great economist Ed Glazer has written at Harvard, the triumph of the city. Cities are great centers of innovation and, and trade. Uh, and so we, we don't want to denigrate cities. It's unfortunate what happens when they become centers of disease. And we would rather them not be centers of disease. So when we had the advent of great antibiotics and great vaccines for viruses, polio was a virus and we vaccinated against it. So it's hard to blame ourselves for being uh, complacent about those things because the advantages of cities are so great that we would hope to put those kind of health concerns behind us. And it's, it's tragic, unfortunate, that this pandemic has now come back to bite us. How does infrastructure in a city area, as well as the cost of housing impact where people decide that they want to live vis-a-vis -vis city versus outside the city? Well, that's, Jimmy, I think that's one thing that we really could see change and change quickly because of this crisis. Uh, we've, we've seen a few metropolitan areas become really the most economically advantageous places to live. New York, uh, Boston, uh, the Bay Area, tech centers, finance centers, and places where the cost of housing has just skyrocketed out of all proportion to what it is in other parts of the country. Uh, you know, I, I have a, a, a good friend in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, who told, told me about some tech guys from San Francisco who moved across the street from him, and they, they bought a house for a fifth of what it would have cost them to buy in the Bay Area, and as he puts it, they're living large. Uh, and so one thing that people are discovering now is that working from home is really a thing. It really might work. And working from home doesn't mean that your home has to be geographically contiguous to the office that you're reporting to. And so the huge, not only the increase in the number of people working from home, but their comfort level, both the comfort level of the employees and the employers with that, could really change preferences. And so just think about, you talked about infrastructure. There are a lot of cities in this country uh, that have lost population, which have terrific infrastructure. They've got the, the, the utilities. They've got the older homes that are underpriced. Uh, and they will become, I think, uh, potential magnets for people to discover. Uh, already in the Wall Street Journal this morning, we read about uh, a, a service. She calls herself Suburban Jungle helping people move out of the city as rapidly as possible, in contrast to urban jungle. It's a pretty good joke. And people are moving from New York to Rochester, a place that had lost population for decades. It's got solid, inexpensive housing. I think we could easily see that trend develop on a large scale, and we may see a repopulation of cities that we had written off. Again, we're talking with Howard Husick, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of the piece for the Washington Examiner magazine, Living in the Future. The point that you just mentioned about working from home, 
The one piece of infrastructure that really needs to be bolstered, I think, in many parts of the country is broadband. And there's discussion right. more of expanding 5G Internet service as well, because a wireless service. Because if you are going to be able to work from home, you need to have high-speed Internet access and good phone connections, because otherwise it's not as easy to make it function well. Well, I, I agree with that, and I know that the... Uh, 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 Secretary Mnuchin yesterday mentioned broadband as something that might be part of a of a infrastructure stimulus plan. It makes really good sense, and uh, it may not make financial sense for Verizon, uh, AT and T, and the others to build this out into rural areas. I don't know that industry well enough to say that definitively. But if it doesn't, then maybe we do have something akin to the rural electrification project that happened in the New Deal, and. Uh, that's the kind of investment that pays off because people can live in less expensive places and uh, enjoy uh, the quality of life that they might not otherwise be able to. I think I've observed some others, and I agree with this, making the point as well that the FCC and its rules on net neutrality and loosening of those red regulations have made broadband use easier for Americans as compared to those in Western Europe, because Western Europeans have slower internet as a result of more restrictive uh, internet regulations, whereas here in the United States we opened up a little bit more with net neutrality. So I found that to be an interesting point that dovetails in with the broadband discussion as well, Howard. So looking out into the future, I mean, we're already talking about this as far as working from home and so forth. When policymakers are looking at housing policy and any of these infrastructure projects in other areas, what do you think they need to keep in mind locally, state-wise, and also at the federal level to adjust to the, the, the lessons that we're learning as a result of the coronavirus crisis? I think that uh, public officials in places that are starting to, may start to see uh, an increase in emigration from some of the uh, the hot tech hubs like uh, the Bay Area, uh, New York, uh, have to keep in mind that they have to find ways to accommodate a range of income groups that might be coming. And so uh, in a lot of places, that may not be that difficult. There may be uh, older, uh, lower priced housing that not only those of means can afford to buy, but those who would be part of the service industries uh, that would be drawn to help those of means uh, could also afford. But there are also cities which don't have very much what people like to call affordable housing. And I think that we need to resist the idea that the only way that we can provide such housing is to subsidize it. This has become a mantra uh, of progressives really since the New Deal that the private market can't provide uh, lower cost housing. Only government can do that either itself through public housing or through subsidized housing. But historically, small neighborhoods, what you might call the poor side of town, is an option. And what that means is we have to be able to, uh, on a case by case basis at local, the local level, relax some of our zoning mm. that makes it impossible to build small houses on small lots. We're not talking about high-rise apartment buildings yes. in, uh, in yes. uh, Boise, Idaho, but small houses on small lots need the zoning that permits it, and that can yeah. be the housing for 
emergency medical technicians, for teachers, for firefighters, for the working class. I think that's such an important point, and it's an example of government getting in the way of a common sense housing opportunities for more people. That is, uh, to be able to access affordable housing, good quality housing, because the government feels that it knows best when it comes to zoning requirements, which puts serious limitations that, as we're seeing now, can have potentially dire consequences, as opposed to the idea that government swooping in will make everything better. Well, it's, you know, we have a federalist system, and all of these planning decisions about what kind of housing and what kind of zoning we have are made at the local level. So... We're not going to get very far uh, attacking these local officials because they're strangling the market, even sure. though they are. <laughs> Somehow we have to convince them that it's in their locality's interest to relax this kind of uh, zoning stranglehold that they've imposed. And I think the best arguments is uh, focus not on how do we help the very poorest move to your uh, community, but how do we help the working class that you need move to your community, the teachers, the firefighters, the EMTs, uh, and, and the public safety workers, the nurses, they need places to live near your local hospital. And if you're going to price them out through zoning, it's not good for you because Great. politics is driven by self-interest. Great point. Again, Howard Husick is our guest, author of the piece for the Washington Examiner magazine, which you could find online at WashingtonExaminer.com, entitled Living in the Future. Let's talk about transportation for a moment, Howard, because this sure. is one issue people across the country have just been dealing with. I mean, we, we see roads. They are constantly clogged up increasingly. So I'm here in Denver, Colorado, where I've noticed our roads have been filled up more and more in recent years, particularly as more people have been traveling, traveling here to Colorado and moving to the state. And you say this in your piece again, Living in the Future. One can imagine that new transportation developments, such as the small Uber-like on-demand buses that are supplanting failing public bus systems in some places, will help employees get to jobs both near and far. Expand a little bit for us on how you view transportation as potentially unfolding and how we might be able to help facilitate that transition. What we've seen transportation is kind of a, a binary choice, as the economists like to say. Either you drive by yourself in your private car or you try to get on a public bus which doesn't show up. And, and, and the systems for which are very costly for uh, localities and regions. But why shouldn't we think about the revolution in uh, app-based transportation applying to mass transit as well? One of the reasons people don't want to take the bus because it doesn't stop near their house and it doesn't take them where they want to go. So that's, those are both pretty big problems. But if you could uh, schedule an on-demand, there, there's a service called VIA, I'm not making these things up. Uber-like buses exist already, and some municipalities are using them to help people get to uh, train stations and other uh, uh, economic hubs in their communities. If you could use an app to get a bus to pick you up at your house, pick up 20 other people, maybe only 10 now because of social distancing, but we'll see how that goes, uh, to take all of you basically to the same street corner where you want to go, that is so much better than a fixed route public bus or fixed route rail service, which so many 
uh, uh, municipalities still think is the only alternative, but is very, very costly. Mm. Well put. As we wrap up with you, Howard Husick, let's talk for a moment about the bottom line here for the future and what policymakers ought to keep in mind. And I think my takeaway from your piece, Living in the Future for the Washington Examiner magazine, as well as our conversation here, is we need to unleash private sector innovation from government restrictions. And if we can do that, that will help to foster the kinds of transitions we need as a society to adjust to these dynamics we're currently facing with coronavirus, but also also be able to really be creative in addressing future problems and challenges that we don't know about yet. Well, you know, we, we do need a well-functioning government. That's of course. I'm not disputing that either. Yeah. And there are certain core functions of governments, such as public health and public safety, mm -hmm. that we want to be better. So we, we should Absolutely. never, we have to bracket that. But, you know, we're already seeing the private sector innovation which has occurred as being absolutely crucial to our getting through this virus. Again, going back to working from home, well, that's only possible because of what's happened over the last 20 years. If this virus had hit us 20 years ago, we would have been adrift. Right. Our employment would have been even so much worse. So we're already capitalizing on private sector innovation. And by the way, uh, I know uh, Bernie Sanders would demonize big farmers, a bunch of uh, uh, greedy overlords, but now we're looking to them for treatments and vaccines. Mm. And so we do want to unleash those private sector forces in conjunction with a government that works. Well said. I could, could, couldn't agree more with all that you put right there, Howard Husick. Well said, my friend. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today on Jimmy at the Crossroads. I really appreciate it, and I strongly encourage everybody to check out your piece, The Washington Examiner magazine at WashingtonExaminer.com, Living in the Future. Thanks so much, Jimmy, for having me. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate the time. Once again, Howard Husick joining us, author of Living in the Future for the Washington Examiner. Such a great treat to have him on. Insightful, thoughtful conversations is what we need to have about moving forward. And fundamentally, in my view, the lesson here is, as we talked about at the end there, the lesson is that government gets in the way so often. Yes, there are services that it needs to provide. But all too often, government gets in the way of unleashing private sector innovation, which is necessary to address these challenges that our country faces from coronavirus onto a variety of topics. So fascinating conversation, and I appreciate Howard Husick joining us. And by the way, again, be sure to subscribe to the Washington Examiner magazine. There are friends and partners here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, and very excited to be able to work with them. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be joined by none other than our producer extraordinaire, Nathan Matus, talk a little bit about sports. There's actually sports news this week, which is pretty interesting. We're finally getting some of it, as well as some of the economics of it, the prospect for people coming back to sports games, how likely is it that sooner than later people will be in the stands again. We'll talk a little bit about that with Nathan. And then coming up, Heidi Ganahl is board chair for the Job Creators Network, and she's going to join us to talk a little bit about the Paycheck Protection Program, where things are at with that, how small businesses are doing, and more. So keep it right here. Lots more coming up on Jimmy at the Crossroads in partnership with the Washington Examiner. I am Jimmy Sangenberger. Stay with us.
Do you wear a toupee? Do you yell out, Spock? Do you put in pauses when you talk? Do you start real soft and then go real loud? Have you won two Emmys? Do you love a crowd? Whatever makes you feel like a shatter. Yeah, you got lots of macho and swagger. You had alien affairs. You sing bad, but no one cares. You find low airline fares. If you like to work, got a handsome smirk. If you're Captain Kirk, whatever makes you feel like a me. Phases on stunning. Welcome back. That never gets old. Welcome back to Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program, coming in partnership with the Washington Examiner, bringing engaging, intelligent talk, Sang style. In just a little bit, we will be joined by the board chair for Job Creators Network, Heidi Ganahl, to talk about the Paycheck Protection Program, small businesses and the coronavirus and more. Looking forward to that conversation. But right now, you know him. You love him. He's our producer extraordinaire, Nathan Matouche, working the Matouche magic day in and day out. And he joins me now. It's been a little while since we brought him on. I thought, hey, we've got the draft coming up tomorrow, football draft for the NFL and some other sports news that's been going on. There's talk still about reopening sports sooner than later so it's about time we brought on nathan matouche mr matouche how you doing sir doing good jimmy how you doing today you know it's it's going all right i'm doing well and i'm just loving that we're in denver colorado and it is beautiful outside another beautiful day in colorado and maybe just maybe this state will be opening up pretty soon but let me ask you this question nathan which is you got the draft coming up tomorrow. Just a basic question. Are you excited? Are you glad to finally have some sort of a sports event happening? Yeah, no, I, I think I'm super excited for, for the draft. And it's usually during this time, I'm kind of watching the Stanley Cup playoffs right now, you know, the NBA playoffs. And, you know, I'm into the draft, but I don't watch the whole draft. I might watch like the first round and then just kind of keep updated throughout the weekend. But Hey, since there's no sports on, I might as well just watch the whole draft. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's just before we get into your expectations or any predictions or anything that you've got for the draft, and then talk about the economics of sports and the possibility of reopening, getting crowds going, and what have you. Let's talk about Gronk. This move from uh, another another Patriots player going looking like to the Buccaneers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, the Patriots yesterday trading Rob Gronkowski to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a fourth-round draft pick. And, I mean, it, it came pretty shocking, but I'm also not surprised either. It's just like, you know, Gronk, Gronkowski, Rob Gronkowski and Tom Brady, they just go together. They got to be together. I think it's it's uh, it's going to be great. That, that Tampa Bay Bucs team is going to be uh, super stacked. But I'm also just kind of questioning, you know, the relationship maybe with Rob Gronkowski and the New England Patriots. Mm. You know, here's a guy who said – you know, I'm done with football. I'm retired. He retires. He joins the WWE for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Tom Brady goes to the Bucks, and he's like, hey, I'm joining you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's nothing like a, a switch 
to the Buccaneers or to another team to get somebody to say, I want to get back in the game and have some fun playing football and get back together. It's sort of like a part of the band coming back together. Yeah, it's like the Beatles getting uh, back together. I was course, more I thinking think that I was more thinking the Blues Brothers, which is one of the best comedies ever from what the 1981 or, or 80. Uh, it's fantastic with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Anyway, um, as far as this pairing now, I mean, you've got Tom Brady, you've got Ron Gronkowski going to the Buccaneers together, coming back. What do you think that does as far as the Buccaneers and their team and, and how they may be from a fortitude standpoint? Well, I mean, it's Tampa Bay Bucks now. I mean, their offense, offensively, they'll be stacked, obviously. Rob Gronkowski provides a big weapon for Tom Brady. You know, you got, uh, you got Mike Evans, the wide receiver there. I mean, it's, it's going to be pretty spectacular. It's pretty a super team in the making for the Tampa Bay Bucks, a defense that's rebuilding, a defense that's on the rise. But, you know, it, it makes sense to me, and I'm happy for Rob Gronkowski. You know, I, we've, we've listened to him before, and you know, he was kind of saying, you know, with the New England Patriots, the culture there is very strict. You know, you got Bill Belichick, the longtime coach, who's very strict with how he does things and, you know, his off-season routine, everything like that. And there's a lot of pressure there. There's a lot of pressure of winning, obviously, with the New England Patriots. So now, you know, Rob Gronkowski, he's looking for a change. He's looking for a, a fresh start, which I think Tom Brady was looking for as well. For me, I never really had an opinion about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but now that Brady's going there, I'm not a fan. I'm just, I, I can't, I can't like, uh, like the Buccaneers at well, all. Well, being that. a Giants fan, too. <laughs> yeah, being it's Being a sure. Giants fan, it's, it's, it's tough for you. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Although my dad likes Tom Brady, so I think uh, we'll see how that all pans out. But, uh, Nathan Matouche, just what else are you anticipating from, finally, a big sports event, probably the most watched draft we'll ever see? Well, it's going to be a virtual draft, so it's going to be very weird, yeah. first of all. You know, not seeing because you know even drafts. There's fans in the stands. You know, mm -hmm. there's it's an exciting event, and there's not going to be really anyone. It's going to be all virtual, so that's going to be kind of weird. But it's better than nothing, and it's going to be really great. I, I think it's going to be around a quarterbacks. Any predictions for a team that might make one particular pick? Anything you're expecting? Well, definitely. I mean the. the the first and second pick are a lock. You got Joe Burrow, the former Heisman winner, and with the LSU Tigers, he's going to go number one. He's a lock with the Cincinnati Bengals. He's going to be their future quarterback. Goal number two is going to be Chase Young, who's a great defensive pass rusher from the Ohio State Buckeyes. He's going to go to the Redskins, great defensive presence. But really, I mean, I think outside of the top three picks, or top five picks maybe, I'd say, I mean, it's really up for grabs. A lot of these quarterbacks, um, you know, Jordan Love, Justin Herbert, Tua Tagovailoa with the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide, they really could jump around any team, you know, Chargers, Dolphins. But I'm really excited about the draft. I think it could go, it could go anywhere. We could see these guys get picked by any team. 
Nathan Matouche, Matouche Magic producer here on the show, joining us, talking a little bit about sports, and in just a moment we'll get over to the, the topic that I think really ties in with the theme of economics that we often hit on here on the show. But I think from a social and societal standpoint, it's good to have something like this draft because people have been needing something to distract them. And you can't just watch binge watch the same Netflix show for you know, more than a few days or, you know, more than a few weeks. Right. Right. I, I think a lot, a lot of people are maybe getting tired of Netflix. Maybe it's time to, maybe it's time to switch to sports. Yeah. So, Nathan, when we look at the return of sports potentially, I mean, WWE is already back. I mean, that's happening. We're seeing talk still about the Major League Baseball coming back, and uh, who knows what else. Maybe we'll see the return of NASCAR, because that seems like you could maintain social distancing more so with NASCAR. It's a critical thing sports is to American society, to the American economy. What are you thinking, based on what you're reading and hearing, may happen as far as sports that will return in the coming, let's say, the next two, three months? Well, the next two, three months—it's really hard to say. You know, with the with the NBA and the NHL, you know, their seasons were pretty much at the playoff level already. You know, they were going to start the playoffs literally a month later when every, everything shut down. So it's hard to say about those two leagues. There's been talks that there might be cities that host playoffs without fans. Mm-hmm. Um, for the NHL, there's I think for the NHL, uh, they were in talks with North Dakota. Some stadium in North Dakota hosting like hosting just the playoffs with no fans. Um, so they're they're talking about that. The NBA they've had similar things. I'm thinking they might just cancel the season. It's really hard to say at this point, you know, because yeah, if you if you cancel the season, I mean, if you if you have a season, the next season's going to start in like a month anyway. So you know, why not just cancel it? But at the same time, you don't want to throw this season to a waste. You know, you want to have an NBA champion, well, if a it's Stanley t- Cup champion. If it's too difficult to facilitate it, they might just have to say, no more season right now for the NBA. But here's the biggest question, I think. Obviously, the sports will take time for st- the fans to return to the stands, like legally. They're, they're probably not going to be able to say, okay, you can start showing up to baseball games or football games for a little while. But once we do get the go-ahead, yes, you can go. Maybe there are social distancing practices at that time. Maybe not. How quickly do you think Americans might step up, start going to games again? It all depends, I think, on the vaccines. You know, how many vaccines can we have? Can the health experts, you know, come up with? I think it all depends on that. It's really hard to, it's really hard to say if they're going to have enough vaccines to have full stands available. I think it's going to be a gradual process. But to say that by you know August or September there's going to be full stand filled stands filled with full fans, I mean I just I find that hard to believe. I don't think they're going to have the vaccines. I I, I do think the NFL is going to have a full season, but they're definitely not going to start out with you know sold out fans in a seat, which is going to uh, really break my heart. Well, I mean, one thing in, in my mind is, and this goes for the point I make in terms of reopening, Nathan, which is that. We can have a reopening of the economy in certain states, especially. I mean, maybe more broadly than that, more quickly. I think certainly here in Colorado, we can start with the reopening and elsewhere. But I think that the American people will take time before they feel comfortable going out. And that's a point in favor of reopening because it's like you can trust Americans to 
go out and do the things they need to do while not taking excessive risk. Maybe not everybody. There will be some bozos that will say, ah, you know, I'm just going to go do everything like normal. But I think that the, the idea that you will have fans in the stands filling up those stadiums, filling up arenas, is just not going to happen for a while. Yeah, and that's, that, again, that's a, that's a tribute to the caution of Americans, the concern, and also a point in favor of saying, yeah, we can reopen because Americans will not take an excessive risk in that regard. Well, yeah, they, they, there might be a few. There might be a few, you know, diehard NFL fans that are like, I'm not missing my team. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to the stands. But at the same time, I mean, you got to, you got to respect the safety of everyone. And mm-hmm. I'm just not sure if uh, they'll be able to have full stands um, coming up in the recent months. Now, it's it's crucial part of the economy, sports. And so the idea of at least getting games onto television, though, that seems to be, um, a good thing that if you can have games, if you can have NASCAR races, these different events that are happening, that will be good for the American psyche and the American economy. And Nathan Matouche, there was also a documentary that just came out from ESPN that really was highly watched. I saw on Twitter over the weekend. It was uh, former Chicago resident was trending because I guess Barack Obama was in there. A former Arkansas governor was trending because. Bill Clinton was in there, and those were the titles that they each were given. I saw a picture that went up of uh, uh, somebody put out a picture of those two, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, as well as George W. Bush, and they said, "There's a, I, I know this guy because he's a former Chicago resident. I know this guy because he's a former Arkansas governor, but this third guy hasn't been on ESPN yet, so I don't know who he is. Uh, tell us about this documentary about Michael Jordan, The Last Dance. Well, it's it's a great it's a great documentary. I, I watched the first two episodes, the first two episodes of ten. So it's a series. It's a series. Okay. Yeah, okay. there's going to be episodes three and four come out on Sunday, but it really put in perspective, you know, how great of a team that was. The 1998 Chicago Bulls. They were mm-hmm. going for their sixth NBA title, their third in a row, and you know Michael Jordan. Watching him, watching him play back then must have been a treat. You know, I, I didn't grow up in the era of Michael Jordan, and so it was tough for me to really see how great of so an impact le- he had. Let me say, I, I didn't watch sports too much. I'm not an excessive sports watcher myself even now, but I remember one of my best friends when we lived in New Jersey at that time was a huge Michael Jordan fan. So I, I, I remember that, uh, uh, that time period a little bit. I was about eight in the, the height of the 1998 season. And see, I was, I was one. <laughs> I was literally one or two young. years old, so I, I don't remember watching a play, but I've heard so many silly things about Michael Jordan. And Space Jam was my, my thing in the 90s when it comes to basketball and, and Michael Jordan. I mean, that was just great, and he was a lead, lead guy there with late 90s, so after that season. Oh, yeah. yeah Space Jam was fantastic. There's been talks that they might do another Space Jam with LeBron James eh, being yeah. at the helm don't, instead, don't do but do I just don't think it'd be the same. No, it wouldn't. You know. So any any final thoughts? Go ahead. I think it's a great documentary to watch. Mm -hmm. I think it puts in perspective that 1998 Bulls team, you know, from all different angles, from the players, and really an angle that they talk about a lot is from the GM perspective with, uh, with Jerry Krause and how his ego got in the way of the team. And I think it it really puts things in, in perspective, Mm -hmm. but you know, Michael Jordan, a guy who got cut from his high school basketball team, 
all the way up to the top player in the NBA. It's, it's impressive. Mm, very true. Nathan Matouche, working the Matouche Magic. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Glad to be and on. our go-to sports guy, although we did have a great conversation last week with Rick French, co-owner of the Daytona Tortugas. Actually, that was two weeks ago. And I really enjoyed that conversation, too. That's but right. that was awesome. there's no replacement for Nathan Matouche when it comes to a little sports discussion here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. All right, we need to run to a video break. When we come back, we will talk with Heidi Ganahl, board chair for the Job Creators Network about the Paycheck Protection Program, how things are lining up in that regard. We just are seeing additional funding going to the program from Congress, it looks like. How are small businesses doing? And what about the accountability, making sure that those loans are going to the places that they need to, which is those companies that are small businesses? We'll be back with that and more here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Stay tuned. And now, folks, for the final segment of Jimmy at the Crossroads, let's welcome back your host, Jimmy Sagenberger. Welcome back, indeed, to Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the show. In partnership with the Washington Examiner, bringing the engaging, intelligent talk, Sang style. By the way, I can't believe I neglected to mention this earlier in the show but tomorrow i'm looking forward to having a live conversation i have to be over the phone but with fahad nazair who is the spokesperson for the embassy of the kingdom of saudi arabia out of dc that should be a really interesting conversation and then this coming friday will be our first free to choose friday here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, and we're going to talk about the free market and the environment, and one of our guests will be the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler. Very much looking forward to what we've got coming up in the next couple of days. Don't miss a minute. Be sure to subscribe today on YouTube if you haven't done so already. YouTube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. All right, so... We've spent a lot of time talking about the economic side of the coronavirus crisis and what we've seen, government policies in the aftermath of this pandemic starting to really spread. We've got shutdowns across the country and small business owners that have been deeply, deeply struggling to get by here, particularly because they're not able, many are not able to do business because they've been told you can't do it. So, the federal government has been trying to provide some support. We've seen stimulus programs of various sorts that have been put into effect, including the Paycheck Protection Program, which was providing loans that could be forgiven, depending on the use of the loan money, for example, for payroll, to small businesses, although we have seen a lot of larger companies that have also been beneficiaries of this PPP. So, what about the Paycheck Protection Program? How has it worked out? How are small businesses doing? What are we to make of it all? Let's talk with our friends at Job Creators Network this time. Board Chair Heidi Ganahl joins us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads to dive in a little bit. Heidi, welcome to Jimmy at the Crossroads. So great to have you. Hi, Jimmy. It's great to be on. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. So, uh, 
When it comes to small businesses, I mean, we're going through a, a very difficult time for small businesses. Job Creators Network has a network of small business members across the country. What are you hearing from small businesses about the struggles, trials, and tribulations they're going through? Well, it's an incredibly challenging time, as we all know. I think the biggest issue is how do we keep employees on staff without revenue or very little revenue? How do we pay the rent? How do we pay utilities? The expenses on the expense side, it's very overwhelming and they're not getting a lot of relief from landlords, unfortunately, or, you know, utility companies or, you know, trying to keep employees engaged and working or paid during this time is really the key uh, motive uh, between behind most of the entrepreneurs that I'm talking to right now. So caring for our employees, making sure that they're still getting a paycheck and keeping the business going and alive while um, we're facing this very tenuous situation. Al, you have been recognized for building a multi-million dollar company, Camp Bow Wow, so you have a heck of a lot of experience with entrepreneurship, growing a small business into a company that has different franchise locations across the, the state and around and, and just all over the place. Um, what from that experience, and, and then of course talking with other entrepreneurs around the country, do you think really helps you to understand what it's like to go through these very challenging times because like I, I'm hearing we'll play a clip in a bit but I'm hearing a lot of people on the media who seem to be dismissive of small business owners saying oh they're not struggling economically they're small business owners therefore they can get by here but you know from experience that there are deep deep challenges especially in a, in a crisis like this but even in general already that small business owners face I mean, honestly, Jimmy, you and I both know that small businesses are the engine of this economy and we are the job creators. We're the ones providing um, a livelihood for most Americans. And so it's imperative that we pay attention and honor the role that job creators play in our society. I just saw a, a frightening statistic this morning that, um, let's see, I don't want to mess this up. Moody's Analytics estimates that in only, in only a few weeks time, stay at home orders have reduced U.S. economic output by 29%. That's almost 30% of our economic output is come to a screeching halt. The medium small business, the median small business holding is 27 days worth of cash reserve. So we're already in this, what, five or six weeks. So the cash is gone. The PPP program is helpful, but more loans is not the answer. We've got to figure out a way to reopen our economy and support these small businesses in providing their products and services so that they can keep people employed. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I want to play a clip here. This is a snippet from a guy named David Zirin on MSNBC. He's a, he's a sports editor for The Nation and a sports podcast host for The Who knew that The Nation left-wing left outlet had a sports podcast, but apparently they do. I think you should stick to sports, but I want to play a clip particularly focusing on the way in which he talks about small business owners here. This is from, I think, Sunday. Uh, they've gone from all lives matter to no lives matter. Uh, these folks are, let's be honest about what they are. They are the Fox News Nazi Confederate death cult rump of the Republican Party. And their very existence is a slap in the face, not only to the healthcare workers on the front lines risking their lives every single day, but it's also a slap into the face of the people who are actually dying from this virus in disproportionate numbers, black and brown people. These aren't economically disenfranchised folks. These are small business owners. These are retirees. These are people who want their workers 
workers to be sent back to work, not themselves. It's a complete and utter farce. It's an astroturf farce. You are welcome, Heidi Ginnall, to talk about Fox News Nazi Confederate death cult if you want to, but it was the last part about small businesses that I think uh, I particularly want your thoughts on. Oh, my goodness, that's frightening. Um, what I know about small business owners are they care deeply about their employees. Yes. They're like family. And as I built Camp Bow Wow and now as I'm building She Factor, I mean, my team is, it means the world to me. I would never put them in danger. And I want the best for them. And what I'm hearing on the front lines is people want to get back to work. They want to figure out how to navigate um, honoring the health and safety of their employees and their customers, but also provide their products and services so that they can keep the economy going, keep people employed, and keep food on the table for their employees as well. He says these aren't economically disadvantaged folks. These are business, small business owners. And I'm thinking, okay, I mean, th this company is a new company for me as well. And so I'm a small business owner and I'm looking at it. I've got investors in my company. I need to make sure I have a return on investment. Every company that starts and utilizes, puts to use investor capital, those investors are taking a chance on that new small business and expecting a return on that investment, let alone all the other aspects to being able to provide for your employees, to make payroll, to go ahead and provide for your own family and to keep your business alive. It just, I think, shows an absolute level of ignorance that is truly dismaying if you think about it. I absolutely agree, Jimmy. And like I said before, I think that small businesses are the uh, engine of the economy. And if we don't keep small business owners supported and help them keep people employed, the government only has so much money. And I think we've already run out, <laughs> honestly, a long time ago. But um, we've got to figure out how to navigate this without destroying our economy and destroying the livelihood of small businesses because that de destroys the livelihood of their employees. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it just goes, it goes downstream. Right. Again, we're talking with Heidi Ganahl, who is board chair for the Job Creators Network. Let's specifically talk about the Paycheck Protection Program, which looks like it may get in an infusion. It passed the House, or rather the Senate on Tuesday, and expected to happen tomorrow would be the passage by the House of Representatives of $484 billion in additional funding. That's half a trillion dollars on top of what was already given out. Uh, how crucial do you think, at least given the shutdowns that are in place, this Paycheck Protection Program? program is and then what also do you make of the fact that a lot of the money billions of dollars it looks like has been given out to larger companies and not just small businesses well i think the ppp program is a great idea it's desperately needed especially because of the grant component because the last thing we want is for small business owners who are already stretched extremely thin to come out of this with a bunch more debt and the responsibility to pay a lot of money back after they get through this. I just don't think that's gonna be helpful. Um, I tell people, vote with your dollar. And if companies that are taking the money shouldn't be, then I think you're seeing what happened with Steak and Shake and some other companies, it'll catch up with them. So I think this needs to get into the hands of the most critical folks on the front lines. Um, you know, employers that have a few employees, up, maybe upwards of, I think it's 500 employees, is what this is targeted for. I did see some stats yesterday that 74% of the PPP loans are for $150,000 or less. So the majority of the money is getting in the hands of small business owners, and I mean small, not the big corporations. Um, and again, I think that consumers will um, be the judges about who should have 
who took the money that shouldn't have taken the money. And companies need to be careful about doing that if they are taking it and they don't need it. Again, Heidi Ganell, our guest, I think that's true. Every one of us needs to make sure that we hold accountable companies that are getting this money that they that should not be. But also, those who are executing the program, carrying it out, one of the challenges when you've got hundreds upon hundreds of billions of dollars that you are doling out in loans or, or whatever else, subsidies, what have you, depending on the nature of the program, is that you can have waste, you can have abuse, That's going, especially when you're trying to roll something out very, very quickly. And the Small Business Administration is doing their level best to, to really roll this program out in partnership with banks and so forth. And so the challenges of running a big government leviathan in the midst of a crisis are especially acute when we already know that any government program can be very difficult to facilitate. But there are a lot of folks who are saying, hey, th there are programs like this that may be necessary, but, and you mentioned this before, Heidi Ganahl, the idea that we can just expect the government to provide for small businesses as well as individuals for weeks or months on end is just not tenable. So this is good as a, a backstop in the short term, but at some point soon, things have got to start opening up more. Yeah, and I think it comes down to incentives. I think the government can play a role in creating powerful incentives to make it easy for people who have been infected or are at risk to stay home, protect themselves, and allow employers to support them in doing so. So I think there's been some very innovative discussion around how to tackle this. Um, Christy Nome and Greg Abbott and some other governors have come up with some great ideas on how to navigate their way forward with honoring the economy, the economic situation we're in as far and as well as the healthcare situation. I mean, this is unprecedented. So we've got to work through this together. And I don't think it's a black or white issue, an either or issue. It's a both and either or, we're all in this together and we've got to figure out how to address both the economy and our health. What do you say to those Americans, and I'm, I'm so glad you, you put out the fact or the stat that you saw about 74% of the Paycheck Protection Program loans, Heidi, are going to the genuinely small businesses that need them. But there are a lot of Americans who may look at this program and say, hey, this is a profligate opportunity for a lot of bigger businesses, and I don't like this structure, and I maybe they're from the left, maybe they're from the right, they're more averse to this program, maybe even pushing back and telling politicians, hey, you shouldn't pass this in the House of Representatives. What do you say to them? I would say vote with your dollar. You know, mm -hmm. hold those companies accountable and, you know, make this a PR play instead mm -hmm. of a, a denial of more money or funding for the people who really need it. Not many, not a large percentage of small businesses are getting this PPP money. So it's just, it's a very small percent of companies that have this opportunity. And I think that there are lots of other ways we can help small businesses going forward, mostly by um, investing in them, you know, buy takeout and delivery from your local restaurants, buy a gift card from a company that you know is struggling. I think, um, you know, if landlords and mortgage owners can help on the rent relief, that would be, you know, wonderful. But I know they, they have bills to pay too. So again, I think we're all in this together and we've got to be really out of the box as far as our thinking and how to tackle some of these problems. But that's the beauty of entrepreneurship and small business owners is that's why they're in business. They're big thinkers, they're innovators, they know how to address difficulties in their business and with their customers um, and their employees. So let's continue to look at getting rid of unnecessary regulation and 
opening the floodgates to innovation and new ways of thinking about doing business and protecting our employees and our customers and a lot of trial and error and taking some risks, but I think it's um, warranted right now. Yeah, one of the great lessons, at least, that we can take away from this, and politicians uh, around the country have been learning this lesson, at least in the middle of a crisis, whether they agree with it being permanent or not, may be a different story, but the idea of cutting the red tape, getting out of the way of the private sector so they can innovate, so they can address these issues, so they're not burdened by unnecessary costs from unnecessary burdensome regulation. I think that dovetails very specifically and nicely with what you were just saying, Heidi Ganahl, again, board chair at Job Creator. Network. Just a, a few more minutes with you, and I want to put on two other hats that you've got for just a moment, if I can, because first of all, you mentioned She Factor, which is a new small business that you launched, uh, I think, last year. Uh, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that and what the dynamic is like at this point in time for, for you and your new business. Well, it's interesting. Uh, we started as a digital and live platform for young women that are just launching their lives after college. And um, it's really to help them get out there and create a life that they love and find their passion and their sweet spot and surround themselves with great people to help them do so. Uh, we launched last May. We reached about, uh, we've reached almost a million young women over the last year. Um, but we had just launched a live event series that we were going to uh, be hosting over the next six months right before this all happened. So we had to quickly pivot with our small team to doing everything virtually. And we've had a lot of success. We have a huge uh, party tonight online, our virtual squad meeting for the month. And we're going to host a virtual graduation party for 2020 graduates, oh, um, young women that are just graduating from college. And we're hoping to have 10,000 young women from around the country on that, uh, on that virtual event on May 28th. So a lot of shifting, a lot of innovating, a lot of finding re resourcefulness and, yeah. and really staying disciplined around who our customers are and how we can best serve them. So look, 2008, I entered college at Regis University, and you remember what was going on in 2008. When I graduated in 2011, I was lucky to, to find a job shortly out of college, but I was wondering, how the heck am I going to find work? Well, now you have graduates who are literally graduating into an economy, whereas you said 29% of the economy is essentially shut down, at least at this point in time. What advice are you giving to young women who are just graduating college and going out into the working world, A, how to deal with and manage through right now in the very short term and then B, once things do get opened up again, how to go about finding that job and getting your footing post-college? Well, you know, I think we have two different choices right now. We can kind of live in the pessimism and the fear and the anxiety about what's happening, or we can look at the opportunity and find ways to um, identify our talents and our uh, resourcefulness and offer that as a, a value proposition to entrepreneurs and small business owners and large corporations. Figure out, you know, what's your sweet spot? What are you really talented at? And get out there and network online and ask for connections and make sure that you're, you know, still using this time if you can't find a job yet to connect, meet people virtually. I mean, you may just be able to get the CEO that, of the company that you want to work for online for 10 minutes to talk about your future and start building those connections and relationships. So hmm. it's all about connections right now and cultivating relationships and you've got to stay the course and you'll be okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my experience professionally has been one of 
it is in who you know and how you cultivate those relationships and it's certainly different when you have to be socially distanced in forming those relationships from being able to have a face-to-face -face meeting uh, and finally Heidi Ginal our guest again board chair job creators network founder of she factor and also you are a um, member of the Board of Regents for the University of Colorado system. In fact, you are the one of two at-large posts of the Board of Regents in Colorado is elected. How is the University of Colorado weathering this storm? Because there's a lot of things that have been changing as a result of coronavirus now. And then you're also surely looking at what is life going to be like for students once we get to the fall? Will students be returning in the class, looking at online prospects, those kinds of things. Just walk us through a little bit what a major universities going through right now? Oh my goodness, it's a grand experiment. <laughs> I think um, we were already on track to completely turn higher ed on its head and innovate and find new ways to uh, work with students and create the workforce of the future. Well, that's been accelerated tremendously. I mean, to the point where we are meeting constantly, we're talking about how to solve um, the students' problems, how to solve the faculty's problems, how to solve the problem of funding because the state government budgets are getting drastically slashed and of course we're worried about admissions next fall and if students are going to be willing to sign on not knowing if it's going to be virtual or live um, at university of colorado we have already taken about a 350 million hit on our budget um, with refunds and you know all the things that are going on there if we don't come back in the fall it could be upwards of 850 million so i think ingenuity, entrepreneurship, resourcefulness, and discipline, the engines of American success, will be just as important in higher education and figuring out how to navigate this time and educate our students and provide value in ways that we've never thought of before. But my goodness, we have some of the most amazing, talented researchers and faculty members at the University of Colorado. I mean, they, they have solutions. We just need to open the floodgates and let them try things take risks and do things differently than the traditional uh, way we've educated in the past. Innovation really is the key in addressing all sorts of crisis situations, no matter what kind of institution you are, to be sure. Heidi Ganol, I know that I kept you on longer, but thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts in all these hats that you wear. I appreciate it very much, and uh, I hope you and your family stay well and healthy. Thanks, Jimmy. Once again, Heidi Ganahl joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, board chair for the Job Creators Network, founder of She Factor, and a University of Colorado regent at large. You know, I, I want to do one other thing before we close. Um, this is cut six. Stacey Abrams was the Democratic candidate for governor in the last election cycle. And Abrams is now blatantly just playing, and has been for months blatantly been playing to any number of presidential candidates since last year, but now Joe Biden, to be the vice presidential nominee. Well, this clip is not about that. This clip is where she talked a little bit about the reopening of the economy and not reopening. Take a listen to this on MSNBC yesterday. As a small business owner myself, I understand the instinct not only to preserve your family's economy, but to protect those who work for you. And the responsibility of a business owner is to first protect your workers. That cannot happen when you have a nail salon where there's no possible way for that technician to be distant from their customer. When you are running a restaurant that requires face-to-face -face service, the reality is 
every small business owner should be able to look to the federal government for the Paycheck Protection Act. And instead of these large corporations receiving millions of dollars, those dollars need to be directed to those small businesses. We should not be putting people's lives at risk because of the antiquated systems of financial delivery that we're facing. That's one of the reasons Project 100 is so important to me, because it's about delivering cash payments to those workers who are on the front lines who still, even though being employed, still receive SNAP benefits because they're not making enough to make ends meet. This project is designed to provide that direct cash assistance, and that's what the federal government should be doing through the next COVID package, and that should be the solution, not putting people's lives at risk so that folks can keep their jobs. In other words, what Stacey Abrams is saying is the solution needs to be government handouts and government support for weeks and months on end. Now, as we were talking about with Heidi Ganahl, again, board chair at Job Creators Network, the idea that these companies, small businesses, should just be able to look to the federal government for support through the Paycheck Protection Program into perpetuity, and that the federal government should also be consistently providing cash payments to the people to help us get through this. That's not a solution. That is a Band-Aid that is actually hiding a gushing wound underneath, like a really good bandage, let's say. Just put a bandage on it and hide the wound. Here's the problem. When you unleash that bandage, you take off the bandage, and suddenly the blood just starts gushing out because the economy has been suffering underneath and you've been just trying to keep it at bay. And then suddenly you allow it to gush out because, well, finally you're reopening the economy and you've had it shut down for months. You are going to see a massive recession at a minimum, if not a second great depression, which we need to avoid. So this is not a solution, as Stacey Abrams is putting it, having small businesses just look to the government to provide endless money somehow from thin air. I mean, Nathan Matouche works the Matouche Magic here as producer extraordinaire. I don't think even he is a magician who's capable of just getting the money flowing to these small businesses ad nauseum. And same thing with the people who uh, are, they want, she wants to just get cash payments, which is you and me. We cannot just and should not just expect that the government is going to be there for weeks or months on end and that that is a solution. Now, I understand her point about nail techs or a hairstylist and how you can't really be socially distanced with those kinds of jobs. That's true in terms of having to get, I mean, if you're doing somebody's nails, there's no way to not touch that person. But if you can yourself make sure that you are perhaps wearing gloves, that plastic uh, gloves, maybe that's possible to, to do. If you are uh, making sure that you're washing your hands regularly, that you are wearing a face mask, that you require that customers come in with a face mask on, uh, in some way, I mean, I, it's tricky perhaps to wear a face mask when you're getting your hair cut, but there are ways that I think these companies can be innovative and creative in getting things going so that they can at least serve customers to the greatest extent possible. Surely there are ways to work on this and to be smart about it and also to trust the people. Trust that these businesses are not going to want to just put their workers in harm's way because they, 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 they really do have relationships with their workers. 
They really do not want their workers to pass on diseases to their customers. They don't want customers to infect their staff and then the staff spread it to all their staff and then they have to shut down again and the word is out that infections happened at this sport clips location just as one random example and therefore you shouldn't go there anymore they don't want that kind of reputation so businesses will take precautions they will figure out how to do it successfully we've been talking about innovation all day we were talking about it with Howard Husick from the Washington Examiner, well, he wrote a column for the Washington Examiner. He's with the Manhattan Institute. We were talking about innovation with him. We were talking about private sector innovation with Heidi Ganahl. That's what this is about, is being innovative and creative and finding solutions. And if anybody can do it, it's the private sector because they have motivation to do it. Look, Adam Smith talked about how it is not from the benevolence of the butcher that we get our dinner but how it is, it is how he's working towards his self-interest. Not a literal word for word quote, but I'm paraphrasing here. It is about the invisible hand. Somebody is working to make a buck. They want to make a profit. Therefore, they're going to provide a good quality service or product to customers. And they don't want those customers to get sick and not want to come back or be scared about going to your place of business. So they're going to be smart about it and be innovative and creative, especially when it's really ingrained in people that you need to take these kinds of precautions. We cannot just keep looking to the government like Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden, Zeke Emanuel and Philip Rucker and Don Lemon and David Zirin and all the rest want us to do. And the reason, again, why they want us to do that is because they believe that the government can and should provide. And that is a difference of human, an understanding of human nature and the role of government more than anything else. We can get through this. We will get through this. And it doesn't mean that we have to or should keep things shut down. Let's trust the people. Let's trust the creativity and ingenuity of the people. Unleash the unlimited potential of each and every individual. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. That is it for us today. Again, tomorrow, Fahad Nazair, who is spokesperson for the Saudi Embassy in D.C., will join us. Also, we'll be joined on Friday for our first Free to Choose Friday, focusing on the free market and the environment by Environmental Protection Administration Administrator, so EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. We've got so much coming up. Be sure to subscribe to the Jimmy at the Crossroads YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads, and also on Facebook, Jimmy Sangenberger Media Personality. Like us there. And follow and like the Washington Examiner on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And by the way, follow me at Sang Center, saying with an E, not an A, Center on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us again back tomorrow. Appreciate it. And as always, may God bless America.